0: Rock, the scores nba podcast i'm joe wolfond and i'm joined as always remotely as always by my co-host joseph Cacharo. talk to me cash
1: who are you saying yes sir to
0: i don't know whoever <laughs>
1: i like it <laughs> you know i always appreciate your unique and bombastic
0: oh bombastic yeah, yeah. wow bo- um, bombastic. I- i'm just trying to keep it fresh man
1: no it's good i mean we need uh we need to be kept fresh in this This season that almost feels like, you know, usually we talk about the dog days of a season.
0: Yeah, the season began in the dog days, (laughs) and they've only gotten doggier from there. It's feeling a little stale, but look, we got the All-Star break coming up. I can tell you I don't particularly care about the players who have been chosen to fill out the sort of skill portion of All-Star night. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on the participants in those events?
1: I care about it less than any other year. So not really, I will say I thought like the, the three point contest field, I think is great. I think this might be the first time it's been an all all all-star field, but it's a great field. And then, yeah, it's like the dunk contest, not exciting anyone. I understand that there have been times in the past where, you know, players, casual fans may not know, end up stealing the show. And it doesn't mean it's going to be a bad contest just because, you know, it's not big name players. But at the end of the day, the names and the, you know, star quality of players is what drives excitement in the NBA. And I don't care how great of a dunker someone is, or how much they might be able to put on a show once the actual dunk contest comes. I think you need to drum up the excitement before the event by having names in it. And I know, you know, the NBA at some point, is that the mercy of, of some of its stars too? If they don't want to do it, they can't force them to do it. But I, I feel like we say it every year, but at some point soon, um, you probably need like at least one young legit star to take part in the dunk contest again to ever get it to the point where like there's drummed up excitement leading into it.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I think it makes sense for the three-point shootout to be all all-stars just because they're all going to be there anyway. And we talked about yeah. this a couple weeks back, just about how absurd it is to fly players down to this misbegotten event just to participate in, you know, a a 10 minute contest. I mean, I guess the dunk contest goes on for a little bit longer and that event has a little bit more prestige, but like the skills competition, I mean, come on, what are we doing? Anyway,
1: we're both fans of Robert Covington, but what's he doing as like the one non-all star in the skills competition? I, I don't know i feel like it's like they put out an email to every player in the league being like hey anyone gonna be in atlanta this weekend and robert covington hit reply because that's just
0: like it was basically just the first person to reply got to be in the skills comp
1: right like that had to be one of the most random things i've ever seen in like an nba all-star email it's like you know three-point contest and all all-star field here's the dunk contest and then randomly skills competition all-star all-star oh and robert covington
0: (laughs) just what (laughs) Who like, I I really like Robert Covington as a player, but his skills don't really translate to what the skills competition asks you to do. Like he's not a great ball handler or passer. He's an okay shooter. Very strange, especially like he's, he's having a pretty disappointing season, but
1: I think his skill was being present in Atlanta that weekend. I'm I'm like convinced that's what it was.
0: Is he, is he from there?
1: You know what? That's a good question. We might have to do a quick Google here live on the air. Yeah. Here's the other thing, too. Are players taking their usual All-Star Week vacations?
0: Based on just kind of like the rumblings and what certain players have said, it does seem like a bunch of them are going to be traveling in some capacity. So, so
1: yeah, Covington was probably going to vacation in Atlanta. Right. <laughs> and,
0: I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, all right, we, we don't have to spend any more time on this. Our feelings on this entire issue are pretty well known, and that's all we need to say about it. Let's get into one of the biggest pieces, probably the biggest piece of news actually in the NBA this week, which is that the Atlanta Hawks, who are in the midst of a, a disappointing season for myriad reasons, have parted ways with head coach Lloyd Pierce and installed Nate McMillan as their interim head coach. They are 15-20 and after beating the Jimmy Butler-less Miami Heat in McMillan's debut as interim coach last night. They held the Heat to 80 points, which, I mean, it might also be accurate to say the Heat held the Heat to 80 points. They did not play a particularly good or fluid game. But the Hawks pick up that win, and Bogdan Bogdanovich somewhat unexpectedly made his long-awaited return in that game. I don't know where do you, where do you want to start with this because I think when it happened, you know, you and I were having a text message conversation where I don't think this was a surprise really to anybody. I mean, Lloyd Pierce least of all. He gave an interview to the Athletic like literally a few days before this happened saying Travis is going to fire me one day. And look, we've seen this happen time and again where whether it's ownership or the front office has certain expectations that maybe unduly optimistic for a rebuilding team. And when that team inevitably fails to live up to those expectations, it has to fall on somebody and and usually it falls on the coach. So I don't think this was a big surprise. I I think maybe what was a little bit surprising was, uh, and this isn't entirely new either, but we just hadn't heard much about it this season, but all the reporting that came out afterwards about how it was... A lot of the players, sort of behind the scenes, that were pushing for this change. So, I'll kick it to you, man. What, what what are your thoughts on this move for the Hawks? For how Lloyd Pierce's tenure played out with Atlanta, and what comes next for this team?
1: Really disappointing. Sure, the, the stuff with the players and, and off the court and how they got along obviously played into it. I'm sure Trey Young' level of contentment is definitely a top priority for the Hawks organization. So I get that, but. I think it's disappointing that a young coach who, you know, a month ago we were sitting here talking about after I wrote that piece on the Hawks defense and the way they were playing, the positive steps forward this team was taking. We had a full conversation about the fact that even though they made Win Now moves in the summer, they were still a young, up and coming team who had a bunch of really good young players under team control long term, who still had all their first round picks. And so even though they made those Win Now moves, they, you know, didn't have to be in a rush. They could still play the long game here and potentially a really fruitful and exciting long game. To me, Lloyd Pierce was part of that. I think he is a good young coach. I think the Hawks were doing things even a couple of years ago that I thought some of the process stuff was good. They just needed to fill it with talent now. And it's a shame that he's not going to get to see this thing through it. You know, it's one thing if we're saying, after a few years gets him to the playoffs he doesn't get to see it through to like take that final step he didn't even get to see this through for them to take the first big step of actually getting to the playoffs which they're still very capable of doing at least at least the play in this year i just don't know what when you're looking at this hawks team and how they've performed i don't know what you're looking at and pointing to coaching you know they were overachieving on the defensive end at the beginning of this year most of the guys that they Acquired in that offseason of win now moves have not been available. And if they have, it's been sporadically for a few games here and there. Their biggest injury, though, was when DeAndre Hunter got hurt. Their defense went into the tank after that happened. And not unpredictably either. Again, if, if all it is is the fact that the players that they believe in building with didn't want Lloyd Pierce, well then, you know, unfortunately, that's the name of the game, right? You have to connect with those players in the NBA of all leagues. I think if I'm a Hawks fan, I would almost be more reassured if I found out that's all it was. Because at least then I'd be like, okay, that sucks that this happened, but I get it, you know, they're trying to keep Trey happy, whatever. If this has anything to do with like actual results and, and job performance on the court, again, I just don't know what they're viewing here. Because if that's the case, then it seems like Travis Schlenk and the Hawks management team are very much out of touch with reality. If they expected much more from a from a results standpoint, given what this Hawks team looks like, how it's been built and the injuries they've been hit with.
0: And I think it's also important to note. Um, I mean, I mean, the piece in the athletic, which was reported by Chris Kirshner, David Aldridge, and Sam Amick, great reporters, all of them very well reported piece. I mean, we don't entirely know what the sources for that piece were. And yeah, look, it's entirely possible that the front office was a little bit worried about the optics of this. And Not, you know, throwing players under the bus necessarily, but like wanted to get that information out there. So it seemed like it was coming from the players and that then gives the front office a bit of a pass, right? It's like, well, what were they supposed to do if Trey Young wasn't happy? Of course, they had to move on from this coach. And that may be 100% the case and it may be, you know, a partial truth. Like, you know, I I certainly don't think it's a falsehood. Like it seems like there's definitely been enough rumbling about Trey's relationship with Pierce that. I think there's obviously some fire where that smoke is. So, you know, there's still some questions that I have about that. Like how much does that mandate from ownership in the front office to suddenly go and be a playoff team? You know, how much does that bleed into the players themselves? You know, where where that is, is suddenly an expectation that they have and they're wondering why they're not having more success. And, you know, from Pierce's perspective, it's like, yeah, he got dealt a pretty bad hand. Because the this big offseason spending spree that the Hawks had in the offseason has been a complete flop so far. You know, none of which is his fault. Like, Bogdanovich has been out basically the entire season with that knee fracture. He just came back. He looked okay. Uh, Chris Dunn hasn't played a single minute because he had ankle surgery. Rondo has been a disaster hasn't done anything to shore up their second unit, which still, like, they still can't do anything with Trey Young off the court. Their offense completely collapses. Gallinari, you know, outside of a recent outburst against the Celtics in which he hit 10 threes, has regressed. His mobility is even worse than it was. And he's no longer really able to create one on one. Like, he's kind of a stationary shooter at this point.
1: Gallo hasn't looked this bad since when he first came back. From blowing his knee out. Um, remember when he was kind of at his peak in Denver, yeah, blew his yeah, knee yeah. out. He came back the following year and he looked awful. It like took him almost a full year to get back to the player he was. But th- the way he looks this season reminds me of that year when he was coming off blowing his knee out. Like he looks awful mobility-wise.
0: Which I guess if you if you want to look for potential positive indicators like the fact I remember that and I remember thinking that that he might have been done at that point you know and that was like five or six years ago and obviously he rebounded and had some of the best years of his career so maybe he can do that again I was like being 32 now complicates that equation but look the point is like you know Hunter went down like you mentioned I think they're 5 and 11 without him and their defense has fallen off a cliff without done there either they have very little point of attack defense And there's really only so much that Clint Capella can do, you know, only so many fires that he can put out on the back end. It is disappointing to see him have to wear this, even if the impetus was coming from some of the holdover players. And I just think, you know, even if, even if those injuries hadn't happened Like, I wasn't crazy about their offseason moves anyway. I liked them getting done, and it really sucks we haven't gotten to see him play yet. But, like, I never saw the Rondo fit or even really the Gallo fit, stylistically or in terms of timeline. And Bogdanovich made more sense, even though I thought they overpaid for him a bit. But, like, just because of his age and his ability to be a complimentary playmaker and an off-the-dribble shooter next to Trey, like, that made sense. But mostly, I just didn't quite get the rush, And like why it had to be this season when they hit the accelerator and why it had to be last offseason when they spent all their bullets on those particular guys. Because now they're in a situation where like they don't want to pay John Collins what John Collins wants as a restricted free agent. And so like they might have to trade him, you know, even though he's a very talented young player who fits with Trey quite well they have put all this money on their books that is going to complicate their situation going forward. Um, and so I think it's tough. Like I don't, I don't entirely know what Lloyd Pierce was supposed to do with that. I think like you mentioned you know, they he, he squeezed more defensively out of this team than I expected him to. I think we've seen a lot of positive development from the Hawks young players, including Collins and obviously Hunter being the biggest one. I think you could point to, I mean, look, a lot of the stuff that's come out of the reporting has been about the interpersonal relationships with the players, right? Like They thought he was too too hard on them, didn't feel supported by him, like he was doing the tough love thing and he wasn't really getting through. But stylistically, I guess you could point to the fact that like their offense does tend to get pretty stagnant. But if you want to lay some of the blame for that at Lloyd Pierce's feet, it only seems fair to lay a good chunk of it at Trey Young's feet as well. Because... He dribbles in place a lot. You know, he doesn't really move without the ball. At the same time, he was the only thing keeping their offense afloat. So I think as a coach, that's a really difficult thing to manage, to be like, you are clearly the engine of our offense, and we can't survive without you. But also, we need you to do X, Y, and Z in order to, like, make the offense flow even better, and also maybe make it so that the rest of the guys on the team, like, enjoy playing with you a little bit more.
1: It's an imperfect situation. And I thought he did about as good a job as you can ask a coach of a team like that to perform, you know? So, yeah, I I just continue to go back to the fact it's disappointing to me. I think the Hawks, I'm not saying they've completely blown it or, you know, there's no reason for optimism, but a team that I think has a lot of built-in reasons for optimism hasn't capitalized on those reasons and um, things don't look as rosy as they should in Atlanta.
0: Yeah. And and I mean, at the same time, like their future should still be very bright. They've been great with young and Collins on the floor. Uh, They've been exceptional with young Collins and Hunter on the floor. Like that trio, if they keep them together could be really strong moving forward. And you know, whether McMillan is the long-term answer, I, I would assume that they're going to, uh, like, undertake a, a wide-ranging coaching search in the offseason. Maybe they find a guy who can better balance, you know, the kind of stylistic elements that I think they need to reach their ceiling while also managing those relationships better. But, I, yeah, and, and, like, they've also underperformed their point differential pretty badly, which, like, their execution in crunch time was maybe a big reason why I didn't think Pierce was the guy like I mean I, crunch time execution like ultimately the players have to make the plays but that's that's one thing I think for like I have a hard time assessing coaches you know it's we especially all especially like yeah it's it's one of the hardest things I think to evaluate as a just sort of like an outside observer of the NBA but I feel like one of the things that gets pointed too often and one of the things that's, that's like easier to see than others is is crunch time execution, and like, what is your offense doing? What is your defense doing in the highest leverage possessions? And at both ends of the floor, I think the Hawks have been really poor at executing in the in the clutch, uh, and that's that's the reason they're underperforming their point differential so badly. But I do think you know their sort of underlying numbers, their peripheral stats, like their numbers with their best players, healthy and on the floor together, speak to a team that actually still does have a lot of long-term potential. So, you know, things certainly aren't as bad as maybe they seem right now. And I'm really interested to see like what they do going forward. And especially interested to see like how this Collins situation plays out. All right, so let's jump over to the Western Conference where... Another team is going through it right now in a, in a somewhat different way. The Houston Rockets have lost, is it what, 12 games in a row now? One of those was like a 49-point loss to the Grizzlies in which they shot four for 45 from three, which doesn't even feel possible to me. I'm pretty uh, sure the
1: average margin of defeat in those 12 games is close to 20 points.
0: It's been very bad. I can't say that I've watched a ton of them during this stretch. I watched maybe one or two of their games like without Christian Wood. And it's just very clear that offensively, like they do not have nearly enough juice without him. Um, And their defense, which we lauded a few weeks back, has also fallen off. It's... um, Again, another situation where it's not as bad as it seems because Christian Wood was playing at an all-star level. He's been unbelievable this season. And this will all look a lot better when he's back. But it's, uh, it's been a tough go for the Rockets. And the most recent news coming out of Houston is that they offered Victor Oladipo a two-year $45 million extension, which was the maximum amount that they could offer him in terms of annual value. an extension, Obviously, they could have gone longer on years, but we're not interested in doing so. Oladipo turned that extension down, and that's not necessarily a sign that he isn't interested in re-signing there or wouldn't be open to it. Uh, He might just not be interested in taking a two-year deal at that price. But I kind of think this means the Rockets are going to look to ship him before the deadline. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think they should. By the way, I had said it was close to 20 points. There are 12 consecutive losses have come by an average of 15.2 points. So good on the Rockets. job. It's good not job, quite Rockets. 20. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the Depot thing, this is what I expected when they first acquired him. I thought it was not going to last long as a partnership. They, they absolutely have to shop him at the deadline and see if they can turn him into something. Because as I have stated, the first episode we did after the Harden trade As I've been saying for the last couple months, and I know a lot of people keep coming back to me like, but the picks, look at the picks they got. I, I get it. If everything breaks right for them with the Nets long term down the line, they could build a team almost exclusively from Brooklyn's picks and potential future futility. I get that. I don't care. You traded James Harden. You traded an MVP caliber superstar, still pretty much in his prime at the very worst at the tail end of it with multiple years left on his contract think about not just the nba if you're a sports fan in general try to think about not just a star not like paul george is a star who got traded with multiple years left on his contract i'm talking mvp level like the true cream of the crop top five-ish superstars in a sport got traded with multiple years left on his contract in the most star dependent of leagues and the team that traded him the way it's looking right now, most likely within nine months of that trade, when next season starts, we'll not have a single player on its roster that was acquired in that trade. I don't care if you had 644 picks in that deal. How do you trade a player as good as James Harden, a once in a generation trade? And honestly, maybe more than that. Like I, I have to go look back through NBA archives and try to find the last time a player that good got traded with multiple years left on his contract. How do you trade a player that good and not even have a player on your roster to show for it by the next season? This is what I was trying to say at the time. Like I I thought it was a colossal failure on the Rockets part. And a lot of people got back to me saying I was nuts because look at the draft capital they got and like what that's worth. And I I obviously I understand that, but you cannot tell me that draft capital alone, a few years down the line is good enough return for the player james harden is even with the way he attained his value this to me is just kind of a continuation of what i was already seeing as a colossal failure and it's like what was the best case scenario you know if victor oladipo like gets to houston and magically becomes the player he was two years ago now three 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 years ago now and, and if that had happened, maybe what him and John Wall and Christian Wood lead the Rockets to like a play-in game this year. So maybe the draft pick this year that that's their own isn't as valuable. And then they probably extend Oladipo, but they lock in a team. Like, I just didn't see any path where this specific package lent itself to anything resembling a quarter of market value for James Harden. And uh, yeah, now I think they're just going to continue to go down this path. I joked at the time, you know, when you're ha- when we have those conversations about the true circuses of clown teams that we're talking, the Knicks, the Kings, whoever. I, I joked at the time, but it was only a half joke that you better start making room for the Rockets in that conversation because Tillman Fertitta's Rockets are kind to challenge the clownest quo, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and they're here, man.
0: Clonus quo is pretty good. I think we might have to work that in more often. But yeah, you you absolutely have been making that point. You've been you've been calling the Rockets Knicks West for or Knicks Southwest for a while, and you know we didn't love the Rockets end of that trade at the time. I think it just looks that much worse now because for one thing, Ben Simmons has been unbelievable ever since that would be trade with the Sixers fell through reportedly in part because Tillman Fertitta just didn't want to send Harden to Philadelphia, which is that much more frustrating. I I would at least, you know, whether you agree with it or not, if their reasoning was, we just prefer to have the picks to Ben Simmons because he's too flawed a player to to build a team around, you know, a, a championship contending team around, and we think we'll have a better shot at doing this if we just take the picks. That's one thing. But... Taking an offer that you know to be worse simply because you don't want to trade James Harden to a rival, even though that team is in an opposite conference, like that's unforgivable.
1: What owner does that remind you
0: of? You tell me. James Dolan. Yeah, I know. I know. I <laughs> Cash. Simmons has played unbelievable. Oladipo has not played particularly well. And. A huge part of it is just that he's not shooting it well. Like, he sh- he's sub 30% from three. He's really not shooting it well from mid-range. He's not getting to the rim a ton. And is a good defensive player. His ability to close space uh, and and make long-range rotations, like, that gives you a lot of defensive versatility. And I honestly think, you know, like, from the Pacers' end of this, a, a huge element of their struggles since that trade. And obviously, you know, they haven't had Levert, like he hasn't played for them since then, but I feel like they've felt his absence more at the defensive end, even than the offensive end. So he brings a lot of value on that side of the ball, but offensively he's not been good. And I, I kind of think that his trade value, like if they're playing all along was to trade him, like to flip him, again, before the deadline, which maybe it wasn't. I mean, based on the fact that they offered him that extension, I guess maybe the plan was to keep him. And that might still be their plan. I don't know. But his trade value to me is probably lower now than it was at the time that they made the trade. So between the fact that Simmons has played at like an all-NBA level since then, that Oladipo's trade value has probably gone down, that James Harden has been like one of the five best players in the league since going to Brooklyn. And, you know, another element of the trade that I really didn't like was that they flipped Jared Allen for what is gonna be a, a Bucks first rounder next year. It's gonna be a late first rounder, as opposed to just keeping Jared Allen, which didn't make any sense to me either. Like Jared Allen's awesome. Every aspect of this that already didn't look the best looks even worse in retrospect. So I don't know, man. It's um it's not like it's unsalvageable because I really like Christian Wood is the kind of player who can be a foundational piece, you know, for a rebuilding team. But as far as how they handled the hardened trade, it's certainly looking like they bungled it pretty badly.
1: They did. And that's the kind of trade you can't bungle. You can't even call it a once in a generation. Like, I, you have to really go back and I don't know, we have to do some research on it, but just how unprecedented it is for a player that good to be traded with multiple years left on his contract. You, if you're the franchise dealing him, you absolutely cannot bungle that. That is the kind of move that will set your team back years. When you bungle that kind of move, and you have an owner like Tillman Fertitta who is legitimately earning himself a reputation as being a meddlesome, potentially cheap owner, those two things combined with bungling a once-in-a-generation trade of a MVP-caliber superstar with multiple years left on his contract, that's it's a recipe for disaster. And uh, this is only the beginning of the Rockets digging themselves quite a hole, man.
0: Where do you think Oladipo could wind up if the Rockets do put him on the block
1: i see i don't know because
0: could he be the guy the celtics take into their trade exception
1: yeah potentially i think that you know that makes a lot of sense financially and basketball wise Mm -hmm. the issue i think is you know maybe it makes sense for a team like boston because it's just a trade exception that's gonna expire eventually anyway if you don't lose if you don't use it within the year so like they're not really giving anything up but i think other than that i think it will be hard for teams to give up anything of substance for Victor Oladipo when like there's been rumors for I want to say almost a full year now about him wanting to get to Miami somehow and I know it, it there's going to be like cap gymnastics will have to be done for that to occur but in general usually when a guy seems to have one foot in the door somewhere or at least wants to have one foot in the door somewhere else teams aren't exactly geared up to go and get into a bidding war for, to rent that guy for a few months and a potential playoff run, you know? So that, I mean, then on the basketball end, as you've already mentioned, like he hasn't exactly been great this year. So I think the combination of him not being the player he once was and the prospect of him probably not wanting to stay where he ends up, it's going to depress his value. So, I guess it also depends on how realistic the Rockets want to be about this trade, right?
0: I think it's going to be pretty tough for Miami to like sign him outright in free agency. To clear the space to do that would re- require them to cut bait with players who I honestly think might help them more than Victor Oladipo would, you know? Like, I don't think they're going to have any interest in like parting with Duncan Robinson, for instance, to make room for Oladipo, you know, or even necessarily like parting with Dragic. Like he's got that non-guarantee or the team option on his second year. Like they can they can clear a good amount of money with the team option. They have a team option on Iguodala, on Dragic, on Myers Leonard, and Avery Bradley. Maybe that gets them to enough space. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'd be interested to see like if a, a team like Boston would maybe try to get into that mix. Because I actually think he'd be a pretty good fit there. Especially like early in the season in Indiana, like he'd gotten quite good at playing off of the ball. But he can also be sort of a connector like a secondary playmaker you know who can who can run secondary pick and rolls who can attack off of the catch uh you'd hope i guess that his jump shot comes back around, but like he could be a big boon to their defense and and that's a team that's been lacking for shot creation, which he could offer them so yeah I mean like take him into the trade exception and maybe throw out like a heavily protected first round pick i could I could see that being a deal that they'd be interested in the other team i i, I think could really use him as Dallas and they would have the salaries, I think to cobble together to make a deal like that work. I mean, they have like Dwight Powell's contract, which it, given how he's looked coming off of that Achilles is a bit of an anchor, but I don't know if they attach it to, to something decent, maybe, maybe it's Josh Richardson going the other way. I don't know. But like, I think Oladipo would be a pretty good fit on Dallas.
1: Yeah, and I do think, as I was saying before, that a a big part of it is also how realistic the Rockets are about what Victor Oladipo's value is, right? If they just want to make sure that they don't lose him for nothing, given that he was acquired in the Harden trade, then then I think a deal will get done because someone will offer something of even half value for him. But if the Rockets think that or are under the impression for any dumb reason that Victor Oladipo is going to net them like a really great trade deadline return, And if they hold out for that, then I think we will not see Victor Oladipo moved because I don't think team, that's what I was saying, where I don't think teams are going to come close to, you know, emptying the clip to get Victor Oladipo for like three months.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's a good question. Like, what's enough for the Rockets, right? Like, is a single first rounder enough for them? I kind of think that it should be, given. Agreed. Given, you know, the fact that he is an expiring, given his injury history, it still wouldn't justify the maneuvering that they went through in order you know, to make sure that he was the one player that they got in exchange for James Harden. But I, I do think that that ought to be enough if a team's willing to put a first rounder on the table. But maybe they really do want to keep him. And maybe they just think, okay, they'll get to free agency and try again, where they can offer him the same term, like maybe instead of a two-year $45 million offer, they're offering him like two years 60 million and maybe that gets it done. I don't know, but it it, it seems like Oladipo is not going to be interested in taking a short term deal. And again, given his his injury history and the fact that, you know, he's in his late 20s, like this is probably his last chance to land a, a huge deal. I think that he's probably going to hold out for something longer term. But that's where the Rockets are at. We have some other interesting trade stuff to get to, which we will do. After this quick break,
1: what's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, Cash, let's talk about a piece that you wrote recently about the market for, in your words, a quartet of flawed, if not washed, big men who are currently extremely available. Uh, Those big men being Andre Drummond, Blake Griffin, Al Horford, and DeMarcus Cousins. Before we start, I just want to point out, Andre Drummond is 28 years old.
1: 27, actually.
0: 27? No, come on.
1: 27. My first line in the Drummond uh, blurb was, in fairness to Drummond, he's not exactly washed. He's only 27.
0: Goodness gracious. Okay, Andre Drummond is 27. (laughs) DeMarcus Cousins is 30. Blake Griffin's 31. Al Horford's 34. I'm 33. I'm suddenly feeling incredibly washed myself. So thank you, Cash. Uh, and I guess thank you, Andre, Blake, Boogie, and Al, for that reminder of the inexorable churn of time that is currently ravaging my body. Anyway, I, I think w- what's interesting about this, uh, you know, as you turned it, the kind of washed big man market is... I'm really interested in like need, right? And like the kind of teams around the league that could actually use these players. And, you know, how much do they have left to give if they were to go to a different team, whether through trade or buyout. And I think for Blake Griffin, especially, and almost certainly Andre Drummond as well, for them to end up on a good team would require them to get bought out. And and then it would require them to, I think, accept a, a different role. How willing are they to do that? What would they look like in a different role? You know, how could a new team utilize them potentially? What do they have left to give? What do they have to offer? Which one of these guys is most intriguing to you? Where do you want to start? And we can go from there.
1: You know what? Let's start maybe a little against the grain with Al Horford. And I say that because to me, Al Horford is the best of these four right now. He's the oldest of the four. And I think he is still the best of the four. I think he is the most malleable and the most plug and play in any system of the four because of what he can do on both ends. Offensively, I mentioned this in the piece. Look, he's not obviously the player he once was on offense, but if you look at just his usage rate, it's his highest usage rate in seven years and the second highest of his 14-year career. You know, most of that speaks to how anemic Shea Gilchrist Alexander's offensive supporting cast is in Oklahoma City and obviously on a good team. Horford doesn't have to shoulder anything close to that burden. But efficiency aside, I think for the most part, you'd have to be encouraged with the offensive season Al Horford's having, given that he's got way too much on his plate at this stage in his career. Shooting, I think, 36% from deep on almost six attempts per game. He's still a good screener. His playmaking numbers are still fantastic. He's still one of the best passing big men in the league, and he doesn't turn the ball over. If you just think of him like that, as a high IQ big man who is a great playmaker good screener is a threat in the pick and pop which keeps defenses honest in the playoffs and that can fit into almost any team's offense right and then on the defensive end you know he doesn't have the size of a guy like Andre Drummond but he's got the wisdom that Drummond doesn't seem to have on the defensive end he's got the mobility which honestly he had lost more than a step in the last couple years And in watching a lot of Thunder games this year, it seems like Al Horford has regained at least one of those steps. He's been more mobile than the last couple of years. Again, not what he once was, but a more mobile defender than the other three guys on this list. A smarter defender. Yeah, I I just think out of the four, he makes the most sense for the most number of teams. And I think he is actually the highest ceiling raiser of these four. The issue with Al Horford, with him and Drummond and even Griffin, we can get into the reasons why it's hard to move them. Although Griffin w- will most likely get bought out. So it's, it's from a trade perspective, you're looking at Horford and probably Drummond. You know, Drummond, the challenge is that he's a 28.8, whatever it is, million dollar player salary-wise. And his on-court value doesn't match, not just his statistic production, but also his actual salary. His on-court value doesn't match it. So you'd have to trade enough players to match salary-wise a player that actually isn't worth that on the court. That's the issue with Drummond. The issue with Horford isn't that necessarily, because I think there are teams that would be willing to match up to Al Horford's 27-whatever-million-dollar salary was if he was expiring. The issue with Horford is he's also got $27 million on the books next year, and his 2022-2023 salary is at least 14.5 million dollars guaranteed which is why the most likely situation if the thunder have any chance of moving al horford is they would probably actually have to be the ones attaching the draft capital rather than acquiring it in trading the veteran another option and it's something we've talked about and it's something i put in the piece and it actually makes the most sense to me rather than the thunder maybe giving up a bunch of draft capital to and attaching it to the horford pick maybe they have to put one in there i don't know but if them and the Warriors swapped Al Horford and Andrew Wiggins. Now, I don't know what kind of draft picks would have to go or if anyone would be involved, but if you just go one for one, the trade works math-wise. I think it makes a lot of sense because one, I think the Warriors get better immediately. I know Wiggins has actually had a you know solid season for the Warriors and has fit in there a lot better than he did in Minnesota, but I still think Al Horford is the better overall basketball player right now. I think he raises their ceiling this year. That team is an absolute championship contender when you bring Clay Thompson back. But if Clay Thompson and Al Horford are on this team next year with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, probably still Kelly Oubre, James Wiseman, that to me is a no-brainer championship contender next year. Horford from an age and contract timeline, I think matches up better with Steph and, and Draymond and Clay, And the Warriors would be able to do that and go all in on the present and, and give try to give these vets another chance at a ring or two they could do that while still being completely all in on the future too, because they would still have James Wiseman and that Minnesota pick we've discussed. From the Thunder's perspective, maybe you don't want to necessarily take a big chance on Andrew Wiggins, but at the same time, I think he's worth a flyer again, because you're, you're also not dipping into that treasure trove of future draft assets you have, right? It's not like the Thunder would have to break the bank or they might not even have to give up a pick at all in taking on Wiggins contract. So I think he fits their timeline better. Worst case, it doesn't work out. You still have all those picks and Shea and Lou Dord and those guys. So I think it actually makes sense for both teams. And uh, I would actually love to see Al Horford on the Warriors. But like I said, I think of the four players we're going to discuss and uh, that I wrote about, he is the one that makes the most sense on both ends of the court for more teams.
0: That honestly just might leave the Warriors a little bit too thin on the wing. I-, I would be really fascinated by that deal if the Warriors could also somehow pry George Hill away. Then I think that they, they start to get really interesting. Um, and from the Thunder's perspective, if it's a straight like Wiggins for Horford swap, I would do that without a second thought. Like, as far as just like making the upside play, like the money is basically the same. And you get a player that fits your timeline better. And that certainly like, you know, add up, your mileage may vary, I guess on, on what you think Andrew Wiggins upside is, but if you're looking at a player who can potentially improve and maybe be a part of your future, there's a far, far better chance of Andrew Wiggins doing that than Al Horford. And I think that would be a totally worthwhile gamble to take. And Wiggins has been good this year, especially at the defensive end. I've been impressed with how he's played. So, from their end, that would make sense. I think from the Warriors' end, it would it would be a little bit dicey just because, look, they have, they have Draymond, who's been playing a lot of center for them and doing it very well this season. They have Wiseman, who they want to develop, and I think they would maybe be concerned about that blocking his path to playing time and his progress a little bit. They have Eric Paschal, who's frankly been at his best as a small ball center. I think suddenly they might have like a bit too much of a log jam in the front court and, a, and not enough depth on the wing. But I do think that's an interesting proposal and, and one that like, if an Al Horford trade is going to happen, like that's what it has to look like, right? It has to be another team with another long-term contract, you know, similar to his, because I just like, there aren't that many teams that are close enough to contention that they talked themselves into taking on his deal that would be willing to eat the term on it. The only other one that I could really think of was Miami. And again, you know, like Miami and like their free agent ambitions. I don't know if Horford clogging up their cap sheet is really what they want. But I think he'd be a really interesting fit there next to Bam, right? Because those guys could basically be interchangeable as like four and five in the front court, both pass the ball extremely well, both defend quite well. I mean, you know, Horford has certainly slipped at that end of the floor, but he's still super smart. I think Miami could cobble the salaries together basically with like Kelly O'Linnick and Myers Leonard. And Leonard has a team option next year and O'Linick's expiring. So if the Thunder just sort of like wanted to clear money off of their books, and maybe the Heat throw in like a couple second rounders or a fringy prospect like KZ Okpala or something like that. Yeah, I think maybe that might be enough to get it done. That would be pretty interesting to me. But I don't know how many other teams could really like plausibly swing a deal because what team is giving up real assets to get him, you know, given his age and his cumbersome contract? And why would the Thunder do it if all they're getting back is like a worse contract? I don't know. Any other teams you can think of outside of like Miami or Golden State? I know people are throwing out Boston, but like. A
1: reunion in Boston. Yeah. Again, because of the exception. I get it. Like the exception, it doesn't expire. Sorry, it expires. You have to use it or you lose it. But it's again, if he was an expiring contract, maybe, maybe if it was just the next year, but that having like almost 15 million guaranteed two years from now, even a team like Boston, like is Boston really going to make that move? I think they might rather just not use the exception than use it on a guy that will be almost 37 years old by the time when they're paying him 15 million in two years. And again, I'll say like, as impressed as I've been by Al Horford this season, he is almost 35 and has spent much of the last two years looking like he had lost more than
0: a step. I do still think that, you know, he's not the versatile defender that he once was. You know what I mean? Like I, so much of his defensive value used to come from his ability to play up high on the floor, you know, to, to hedge and trap and switch. And also just how quick he could rotate on the back end, And that allowed you to just play all kinds of different defensive styles because he was going to be in the right place at the right time. And he's just not that fast anymore. Like he still knows where he has to be. He still makes the right rotation, but, He's a beat later than he used to be. He's not the switch defender that he used to be. Like he, he's effective in a drop, but I think primarily you want him playing in a drop now. So that's eaten into his value quite a bit. And I also just think like, you know, the, the theory of him as a floor spacer is, you know, exceeds the reality in a lot of ways because he shoots it okay, like 35, 36%, basically league average, but he's got a slow release. And I think... We really saw that in Philly last year, right? Where the idea of him as a power forward who could play next to Embiid and essentially be a floor spacer on offense, it didn't really come to fruition because you know, defenses would still play way off of him and he couldn't really take advantage of the space because of how slow his windup was and that just gave defenses time to recover and it wasn't really providing the spacing that Philly actually needed. So yeah, he's useful in the pick and pop for sure. Um, and, and the fact that he can be like a league average three point shooter is obviously valuable, but he's not the most willing of shooters. And and that slow release, I think makes it a little bit tougher actually to fit him in. Like if it, if it was Boston, for instance, like to slot him next to Tice wouldn't be an ideal fit to me. Like both those guys are undersized. And in that case, you're kind of getting like the drawbacks of playing two undersized bigs together and not really any, any of the benefits.
1: Which one of the, the remaining three do you want to go to next?
0: I'm interested in Blake Griffin, man. Like, this dude two years ago was all NBA, had maybe his best season in the league, had completely reworked his game. You know, we know that he's he's obviously like a below-the-rim player at this point. He's a completely different player than he was in his early years with the Clippers, but has turned himself into like a super capable ball handler one of the better passing bigs in the league and a guy who that season hit more pull-up threes than all but I want to say six players in the league like he was deadly shooting off of the bounce that year you know obviously like the the explosiveness is gone and that really limits what he can do as an off the dribble player and like all those other skills that he's built up suffer from that because if he's not generating any advantages he's not getting a half step on his man like The playmaking avenues close up. He's not creating separation for the jumper like everything suffers. But those are still skills that he possesses that could be very useful to a whole number of teams. He's the guy like I think more than any of these other guys who like he's got to be willing to accept a bench role where he's playing like 18 to 22 minutes a game, you know, playing mostly in transitional lineups against opposing transitional lineups probably being used more as like a small ball center you know than as a a, as a power forward or or you know like a wing I guess which is kind of what he's been at certain points in Detroit and I, I sort of conceive of him as basically what Dario Saric is for the Suns which is like a small ball center off of the bench who can still occasionally close games which he did last night and like Played really well in that win over the Lakers. Has some stretch, has passing chops, and is is like just good enough defensively that he's not going to get totally shredded, you know, when he's out there against opposing bench players. And I think there are a lot of teams in the league that could use exactly that type of player. Like my list of teams included the Nets, Lakers, Raptors, Celtics, Sixers, Bucks. Heat and Warriors. I think all those teams could use Blake Griffin's skill set and in a limited role would be really helped out by him.
1: It's going to come down to how realistic he is about the best role for him at this point of his career. If he is okay with a limited role off the bench, tailored to what he can still do, you know, pretty well at an NBA level then I think he will land with one of those teams because especially if he's a bio, which he will be, you know, it's going to be essentially just signing a free agent. Then he's going to be the lowest risk but highest upside guy of the four we're talking about. And all the teams you mentioned, you know, contenders and fringe contenders will make that call without hesitation. They'll be tripping over themselves to be the first ones to make that call. Now, if he wants to be something closer to like, Not a top option, but you know, a starter who's very much involved in what the team's doing, you know, more than 15 to 20 minutes a night. I don't think that's the best role for him. But then I was thinking like, I don't like, does like Charlotte make sense? Like if he wants to be that guy, then I think he'll end up on a team that's like on the playoff bubble, you know, that's playing a play in game would constitute a successful season. And I actually think Mm. Charlotte makes sense out of those teams.
0: I just think Charlotte already basically has two guys who play that role like better than he does in right, PJ, PJ Washington, Washington yeah. and Miles Bridges. And not to say that he couldn't play alongside one of those guys and he, he'd be fun there for sure. I, I just don't know if... I, I like Charlotte more as a Drummond destination actually, which we can get to in a, in a sec. But if it's going to come down to him sort of like having his pick, then is it like you want to compete for a championship as a 15 minute, a game player on the nets or the Lakers, or do you want to compete for the conference finals and maybe have like a bit of a more sizable role with like the Raptors or Celtics or I think the Sixers is an interesting one actually, because he could basically like take Mike Scott's minutes and roll and probably have like a, like a little bit bigger role than that. But I feel like, he could help out their transitional lineups a lot. And maybe, I don't know, like, I don't know if that essentially takes away their need, I guess, to play Dwight Howard off of the bench. And we talked about like the struggles that they've had playing lineups with Dwight and Ben Simmons, both on the floor. But if you could take a chunk of those minutes and make them like Ben Simmons and Blake Griffin minutes instead then, I don't know, that could be pretty cool.
1: I think one thing to keep in mind as well is that, while I think everyone would agree it makes more sense for him to try to get a championship, like compete for a championship, find the role that actually best suits you at this stage of your career. There is also the other side where it's like, if he thinks for whatever reason, maybe, you know, he's been going hard working out while he's been shut down, whatever the case may be, if he thinks he can summon like two months of even like 70% of of what he once was, right? Just like put it together for two months as part of a playoff run with even like a mediocre-ish team. If he's bought out, like don't forget, he'll be a free agent again this summer too. And so while, yes, selfishly, I want to see him go to a contender and compete for a championship and be this kind of like veteran 15, 16 to 18 minute a game guy off the bench in a role that suits him. I definitely also understand that he might want to end up in the role that he thinks will best showcase him for another potential contract this summer. Not that anyone's going to be giving Blake Griffin a huge contract at this stage of his career, but again, say he has a really good two or three month run with a team that gets into the playoffs and he has a good few playoff games, they'll be interest in him this summer, like no doubt. And so I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind too. The, the one thing I'll say with Blake is this, he lacks the explosiveness to get to the rim now right his always like shaky jumper has been as unreliable as ever this year and so when you put those two two things together he's not really able to like leverage you know to maximize the full leverage of his playmaking because of the way teams are playing him now and i think that's that's my biggest concern even if he does land on a team we want to see him land on is like can he can he even really maximize the leverage of what he can still do well, given the way teams are playing them because of what he can't do anymore?
0: That's why I I kind of think that Miami might be a good destination for him because I think if there's a team in the league that can mask a player's weaknesses and amplify their strengths, especially a player like him that can pass as well as he does, I think that might be a good spot for him. Like he He, to me, would fit pretty snugly into that offensive system, I mean, just like his ability to sort of play make from the elbows and the high post and run dribble handoffs, like, um, and, and they've been lacking for that sort of big forward this year, right? Like he could he could take kind of like the Kelly Olynyk role or a bunch of Kelly Olynyk's minutes, mm-hmm. and they've been looking for answers. I think at that sort of at that four spot, basically, for most of the year. So maybe he's an answer there. I don't know what's your what's your sort of ideal destination for him? Where do you want to see him? wind up?
1: I think Miami is a good one. A lot of people have, have mentioned Milwaukee too, which I could see him like thriving in a bench role in, in Milwaukee. I'd like to see them land in Miami. And I think for the reasons you mentioned too, I think they can actually maximize. Like Maybe that's the happy medium where it's like you land on a, at worst, semi-contender who's going to be playing meaningful basketball. You land in the role that actually fits you, but you do that while also landing with a team that could maximize your strengths and put you in a decent spot heading into free agency.
0: You get in the best shape of your life.
1: Right. Pat Riley is putting you through seven a days.
0: You're getting delicious handcrafted lattes every morning. Yeah. Yeah, I think that'd be a good spot for him. And the the reason I threw Boston and Toronto in there is just like we talked about them on last week's episode. And it's like, wow, like these are teams that, you know, they're, they're sort of top five guys are really solid. But after that, they've got nothing. And I think about what a sort of playmaking big like Blake could do for those teams when they have to tap into their bench. And I think those might be the teams where it's like, he could actually make the biggest impact, you know, just because of how starved they've been for anything. Once they get past their, their first four or five, six guys. And I'd be interested in seeing him in either one of those spots. Andre Drummond. What do you think? (laughs) Like, I really think this this is going to end in a buyout because I just don't think there's a team out there that's going to be able to cobble together the salary or be willing to cobble together the salary to actually do it as a trade. Basically, my top choice for him and the one that I actually do think could be feasible as a trade rather than the buyout route is Charlotte because they don't have size. I don't know where they're like the 24th or 25th, something like that in defensive rebound rate. Like they're getting killed on the boards as a result of having to play all these minutes with like PJ Washington at the five uh, or Miles Bridges at the five, or like even Biombo, who he's a proper center, but he's still like six foot eight. Like If they use Biombo's salary as a starting point, and then I don't know exactly how much more they'd need to add on top of that to make the money work, but throw another salary in there. And then I don't know what a second rounder, like, yeah, Maybe. I I don't think it's getting any better than that for Cleveland. Maybe they get two second rounders. Like, that. they're not yeah. getting a decent young player. They're not getting a first. Like, either they're buying them out or, you know, they're taking back some expiring dead money contracts and they're getting a second round pick. Unless it's like they're taking a really bad long-term contract and then they can get like a first rounder in the deal. Like, And I don't even know who or what that would be, like what contract is out there that a good team is looking to get off of that they'd be willing to like attach a first round pick to it in order to just like acquire Andre Drummond for a couple of months.
1: If the team got crazy enough, Dallas and Kristaps Porzingis. but I don't think that would, (laughs) no, 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 not for Andre Drummond, but you just the first part of your question a good team looking to get off of have you, have you seen those reports in the last week that the mavs are looking to get off that contract i don't mean it for andre drummond i just mean to answer that first part of your question of good but teams i don't looking, think
0: they'd be looking to get off of it as like they need to salary dump chris no mavs, porzingis like but yeah, they are a good team
1: looking to get yeah. off a long-term yeah. contract now would they give up that for andre drummond hell to the no that's maybe i should have included porzingis in the washed up big man mark wow I've never been a Drummond fan, and I'm not really one now. I think when you look at a gap between statistical production and on-court value, there's probably none bigger than the one presented by Andre Drummond. If you look at his numbers this year in less than 29 minutes per game, you'd be like, "Oh, look at this production. He is pretty close to a zero on the offensive end. That's saved only by the fact he's an elite rebounder, which he is. Take nothing away from him. He, on both ends of the floor, this guy's an elite rebounder. He's, I think, literally the 100th percentile in defensive rebound rate, 97th in offensive rebound rate. But other than that, and the fact that he's like a big body on defense, he's got good hands, actually. Like, his steal rates have always been good. Mm-hmm. So, here's what you get with Andre Drummond. You get a great rebounder who can just use his size on both ends of the court in the paint. And look, there's absolutely always going to be value for that. Like, I'm not saying he is not a solid NBA player, but when he's being paid at a level because of his production and his value is nowhere near that production, it's very hard for teams to talk themselves into acquiring that guy because, you know, like the Raptors were the team most linked to him in rumors that I don't believe. But even if you just look at the Raptors, which again, if you just look at like, if you forget the salary, forget his deficiencies and look at the things i mentioned that he actually brings to the table great rebounder big body on both ends you can stick him on the behemoths in the league and you know he's he's not a great defender but he's solid enough like as a big body absolutely fits exactly what the raptors need even if it was off the bench right just a guy basically an upgrade over aaron baines because their best lineup is small and they need someone to clean the glass be a big body whatever But when you now have to look at the fact that you have to match a $28 million salary, it's like, okay, they're sure as hell not trading Kyle Lowry for Andre Drummond. You can construct deals with like Norman Powell and filler, but Norman Powell's offensive value, his offensive impact to me is bigger than Drummond's rebounding and kind of defensive impact. So I don't think you get better by trading Norman Powell to fill another hole with Andre. Like there's a perfect example where the team that maybe he fits most with in terms of what he does well, has no path to constructing a deal where they can acquire him and get better because of what they'd have to give up. That's the conundrum. And it's what I wrote in my blurb about Drummond. Take nothing away from the fact that he got the deal he got from Detroit back in 2016. All the power to him for landing that massive extension. But his current salary and the player he has or rather hasn't become is now holding him back from getting out of a bad situation in Cleveland and joining a contender before free agency. And so maybe you're right. Maybe this ends in a buyout. And at that point, he has more control over where he goes and he can land on a team that actually he fits, that doesn't have to worry about sacrificing players and assets to get him. But other than that, I just don't see it. I mean, like I talked about the offensive zero he is. If you're a Raptors fan listening to this, who's frustrated by watching Aaron Baines, consider that if you just look at screen and rolls and guys as the roller, 76 players in the nba have finished at least 30 possessions as the roller yes aaron baines not surprisingly ranks 76th in efficiency of those guys andre drummond ranks 75th like i don't know if people realize how bad andre drummond is on the offensive end because they just see the numbers and think walking double double
0: yeah i do think a large part of it is just he just bites off more than he can chew a lot of the time and he should be more efficient as a role man. I mean, I don't really have a great explanation for that, apart from the fact that, like, the guys who are playing the other end of that pick and roll are not the best playmakers in the world. Right, they're not you know, Kyle like Lowry you, and Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, or if you, or you put him yeah, in a pick and roll with Kyle Lowry, and, like, he, he should be finishing those pick and rolls a lot better than he's doing now when, when he's, you know, being set up by, like, Darius Garland and Colin Sexton, but... To, to me, like the, he's a very bad finisher around the rim, and a lot of that just has to do with the fact that like he tries to do too much. Like he makes these kind of wayward, reckless drives to the rim. Like he wants to do stuff in the post that he's just not very good at. And I think if you put him on a good team where there really just was like less for him to do. Like if he wanted to stay on the floor, it's like okay, you're you're going to screen and dive. Like you're going to crash the offensive glass. We're not running post-ups for you. Like this is not your job. Then I actually think like he would bring more value at at the offensive end because he would be taking less off of the table while still providing you like that quite valuable offensive rebounding. And maybe he could, he could be a fit for the Raptors because they're awful on the defensive glass as well. Like I think 29th in the league right now. And my feeling about that is take a look at the Philly matchup, right? Which is the one I think like, if you were a Raptors fan, you'd be like, okay, we need a big, like Andre Drummond for that matchup. I think they're better off, like they could use them certainly in short minutes, but like Baines is a better defender than Drummond is. So if they're just looking to have like a big play, like 15 to 20 minutes Fluster Embiid a little bit, maybe wear six fouls. I, I almost would rather have Baines do that, and I think rather than having like forty-eight minutes of having, you know, a glute on the floor to just bang bodies with Embiid, I, I think they'd be better off because, like, they're not going to leave Andre Drummond on an island to play against Embiid in single coverage anyway. Like, Embiid destroys Andre Drummond; like, he, he's done it their entire career. They're going to be sending hard double teams anyway. So if they're going to be sending hard doubles anyway, why not just stay small? Like let OG be the primary, send those doubles and triple teams, and then make life more difficult for Embiid at the other end of the floor. You know, rather than trying to have, like patch together 48 minutes of actual center play and still sending doubles, but not actually being able to space the Sixers out at the other end, like that's kind of my feeling on that. And then it's like, you get past and beat and it's like, who else are you really worried about in terms of like playing small where that's really going to burn you?
1: I think the Raptors would agree with you. And I think that's why they're not going to make a move for him. And a lot of teams like, you know, we keep talking about that Boston exception, for example, Boston's not using that exception on Andre Drummond, like try to find a a, a spot in the NBA. I, I mean, you mentioned Charlotte, maybe that is actually the best case scenario. But other than that, try to find an NBA team that would be willing to actually trade for Andre Drummond who would get any better. If not, just avoid getting worse, like stay stagnant while doing it. I don't think you can come up with one, maybe Charlotte and that's it. And so, yeah, if if he gets bought out, it becomes a lot more interesting. If not, I don't think he's getting moved. And, uh, and then I think he becomes a really interesting case study this offseason as a free agent because he's obviously going to take a pay cut. But you also just never know. There's 30 teams out there, and there's a few clown shows that could talk themselves into paying Andre Drummond another contract that will then be tough to probably move.
0: I don't. I don't see it happening. Like, I, I don't think he, he is not getting any more than the mid level. I don't think in free yeah, agency.
1: The book should be out on him.
0: But if he does get bought out, I mean, like maybe maybe he could latch on with the Nets. They could certainly use a bit more size. Like, uh, but that's another team where it's like I don't know. Maybe they're just best off like. Playing a little bit smaller you know playing with Jeff Green or or KD at
1: the five you mentioned how poor of a finisher Andre Drummond is so why don't we finish with the fourth guy on on this list you want to talk about poor finishers DeMarcus Cousins is six foot ten 270 pounds and he's shooting 44% at the rim there have been 195 players this season who have taken at least 50 shots in the restricted area. DeMarcus Cousins out of those 195 ranks 194th in field goal percentage in the restricted area. I remind you he's 6 foot 10 and 270 pounds. And if you look at that list of the 195 guys who have taken 50 shots in the restricted area, unsurprisingly, other than DeMarcus Cousins, the bottom like 10 or 15 are pretty much all guards and undersized guards out that's like aaron holiday fred van vliet guys like that who's that it's aaron holiday he's i think uh if i remember correctly cousins is sandwiched between aaron holiday and fred van vliet (laughs) in field goal percentage at the rim but it makes a lot more sense with those guys than it does with a six foot ten 270 pound guy it's absolutely mind-boggling there's a lot of things demarcus cousins used to do and he can't do now and it makes some sense when you consider the just really long list of like unfortunate devastating injuries he's dealt with it makes sense why he can't do certain things not being able to finish in the restricted area at the rim i don't i guess some of that obviously you chalk up to he's got no bounce left in the legs whatever but it's bad man and when you consider that like his rebounding rates have fallen uh he's never been a great defender but he's especially not a good one now his jump shot is wonky as ever And he can't finish, not even just can't finish in the rim. Like, is atrocious finishing inside. I am not asking sarcastically when I say, what do you get from DeMarcus Cousins other than just being a big body on a basketball court?
0: Well, passing. He can pass. And I actually think, you know, you mentioned his jump shot. Like, that, like, it's not great. But... I mean, if he can just keep shooting like, I don't know, 33% from three-point range like that. If you're a bench big who can shoot 33% from deep on like substantial volume and you can pass from the high post, then there's probably a role for you somewhere. Not a big one, but for 12 to 15 minutes a game, you're, you're stationed in the high post and you can hurt a team somewhat with the threat of a jump shot. And you can also pick out cutters and he can rebound. Like he's got some skills that should have a little bit of staying power, but I mean, I agree. Like obviously the, like the lack of finishing ability, he just has no lift left. Right. Which, which makes it hard for him to to finish when there's somebody between him and the rim, you know, basically impossible for him to do it at this point. And makes it harder for him to get off the ground to contest and protect the rim, which he has never really been a strong suit anyway. He doesn't have lateral quickness, so you don't want him defending high on the floor. But if you put him in a drop, then he's not a rim protector. So I don't know how you squeeze any kind of value out of him really at the defensive end. I do think like you want him playing close to the basket so that his rebounding plays up. But apart from that, yeah. I mean, you're, you're looking at, Squeezing him into like a small role as a bench big and all the teams we've mentioned, I guess, sort of fit that maybe the Nets, maybe the Lakers like it's uh, it's tough. It's tough to to find a good team that he can meaningfully help.
1: I think he ends up on one of those two teams and playing sparingly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think, too. And that's I mean, that's a real case of like life comes at you fast in the NBA. Right. Um, I mean, we were talking about Blake Griffin, who was all NBA a couple of years ago, but. Doesn't seem like that long ago that that Cousins was having like a really good season playing next to Anthony Davis in New Orleans before tearing his Achilles, and it was like kind of just one thing after the other. After that, you know, it was his calf, and then he tore his his ACL. I think
1: didn't he blow out his quad? Or am I going? Cr- Remember with no, the Warriors? Yeah, Remember right. he had actually started his, playing yeah. well in that, in early in the playoffs, and then I'm pretty hmm. sure maybe it was his calf, his calf or his quad.
0: It was like their first playoff game of that uh, in 2018-19 of that run, I think. I can't remember if it was his calf or his quad, but I do remember it was like the first playoff game basically that he'd ever played.
1: Chasing down a loose ball, remember?
0: Yeah. And then he was out until the finals when he had actually a couple of moments in the finals, but on the whole was pretty bad. And I don't know. It's just, it, it happens fast. So that's, I guess, how you can wind up being a washed-up big man at the age of 30. And I think these washed-up podcasters who are also on the wrong side of 30 are uh, going to have to call it quits there. What do you say, Cash?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I will get a fan shout-out for the week. Jacob in Toronto, who uh, Ways Leather Company on Instagram who reached out, said he is a fan of the pod. In his own words, I just love the damn pod. So (laughs) shout out Jacob and all of our loyal listeners. And the usual reminder, if you're a fan of the show, hit us up on social media. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been listening, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode.
0: All right. Well, thank you to Jacob for loving the damn pod. Thank you, Cash, for your insights and just for being a great guy. Great talking to you. And to our listeners, we'll talk to y'all next week. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.